Next week, Chris Moody, Transfiguration. And then we're going to go into Advent for four weeks. Shane will preach on the 30th. And then John 4, the wedding, or the uh, woman at, at, the, at the well and beginning into our spring. So that's kind of where we're going. Um, but where we are right now is uh, we're kind of coming back to John the Baptist. And just to remind you, the Gospel of John begins with this prologue, in the beginning was the Word, this masterful description of how God created all things and how Jesus created all things and how through him all things were made. And then the first person we meet is John the Baptist. And remember, John is the one who points out that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Um, then we meet the disciples. And then we have a wedding at Cana. And then we have Jesus cleansing the temple. And now, last, the last few weeks, we've had this dialogue with Nicodemus. And then John is kind of bringing us back to John the Baptist as we transition. I think it kind of closes out this first section, um, reminding us of really themes that will be carried out through the rest of the letter or the Gospel of John. And the primary theme I want you to hear, we talked about last week, is the reckless love of God. Uh, And so I titled this sermon, uh, not You Can't Handle the Truth, God is True, but Can You Handle the Truth? That's the question I want you to be thinking about. Can you handle the way God actually loves you? Can you move toward him as he moves towards you? So let's look now, chapter 3, starting in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness, and I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, excuse me. I'm going to go into four. Three more verses. Four one. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Now, this is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that your 
word is true. Thank you that you have borne witness to us of of things in heaven that we can't even imagine and of the reality of eternal life with you. But Lord, we recognize that it is so glorious that often we don't know what to do and we resist. I pray this morning your spirit would teach us to humbly receive your word, to long to um, place our seal on you, Lord, that we would walk with you all the days of our life. Amen. I was listening to a podcast recently, Malcolm Gladwell. He is a writer for the New York Times. He's written books like Tipping Point and Blink. He has a podcast um, where he goes into historical settings, like stories, but he does his thing where he kind of studies them with a different angle and exposes new findings. It's really interesting. This one um, podcast, he was talking about proof. And he was hearkening back to a speech he did at the University of Pennsylvania where they asked him to come in and speak to the student body about proof. What is proof? How do you prove something? We all say we want proof, and he's going to teach on that. Well, he got really boring, and he got into this long story, which he acknowledged. I'm going to bore you with it for two minutes. Uh, There's a man he studied from the uh, early 1900s who worked for an insurance company, and his job was to go out across the country and determine what sorts of life things create early death, create health problems, and he began to study different jobs, different uh, um, socioeconomic levels, maybe different racial backgrounds, etc. And one thing he discovered was that coal miners weren't doing so great with their health. So he began to look into this. Uh, They would cough up black tar. And he, he saw this evidence, and then they would go talk to doctors, and doctors would say, that's actually a really good thing, because it means that their lungs are doing their job. It's, kick, it's coughing out the bad stuff. And uh, so he had to do more research. Um, also, the, the scientists and the doctors would say, coal miners get less tuberculosis, so it's really actually a pretty good setting for people. And as he, he, they wanted proof. We're not going to change any of our laws, anything governing coal mining without proof. So he had to do more studies, more proof. And what he found was compared to other laborers in that community, like farmers, maybe welders, other people doing other work, coal miners died like 10 or 15 years earlier in really difficult deaths. And he put together this entire study and thought, finally, I'll present this and we'll make some changes. And he presented it, and nothing happened. Nothing changed until 1970, like 50 years later. So Gladwell is trying to say, uh, what are we all ignoring in our midst? What I'm trying to say is the truth is costly. And when the truth comes, it's not that we need more proof often. It's that we aren't willing to face the price or the cost of that truth. And what we're going to see in this passage, and this idea that Jesus bears witness to the truth is that though there's a cost to coming to that understanding, it's the only way you'll receive the life you really are after. We all are after something. We all want a life. And the only way you'll get to that life that you are after is if you'll come through the cost of the truth, which Jesus bears witness to. So, three points. What is the truth? How do we learn it? And then how do we get it? What is the truth? Um, The Gospel of John 
loves the theme of truth. And I looked at the, the other four Gospels, all four Gospels, excuse me, the other three, all four Gospels have the account of Pontius Pilate, right? Jesus before Pilate. Only John includes this little interaction. John 18, Jesus is before Pontius Pilate, and Pilate says, so, you're a king. And Jesus answers, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. So he's summarizing what we're already learning, that Jesus is saying, I'm here to tell you about the way the world actually works. And Pontius Pilate says three words that sound so postmodern, it's, it's hard to even get past. You know what he says? What is truth? That's what our culture says. What is truth? You came to bear witness to the truth. What is truth? And I think we have in our society that question reverberating through all aspects of it. We all love truth with little t, right? Netflix series like Making of a Murderer, uh, podcasts like Serial, maybe if you like to read crime novels. Like, we want to know, like, truth. Like, how does, in this one micro situation, what is the truth? But what we don't like is the macro truth. We don't love the concept of a meta-narrative. And by we, I don't mean you in this room, but I mean our culture at large. There's a tendency to not buy into the fact that there's one truth, one universal truth anymore. Um, like, have you ever read a novel, and you're reading a novel, and all of a sudden, you're like just getting into the plot and the characters, and then the, the writer like takes you to like another place, like another, other people, maybe a different time. And you're like, how does this fit? But you keep reading. Why? Because you trust that writer that by going into this other area, it's going to come back eventually. It'll, it'll dive back into this larger story, right? And that's what trust that there's truth does. When we trust that there is a truth, that in God we have truth, we can, we can accept the fact that though we might have other directions we go, God is always bringing it back together for his purposes, Years ago, when you wanted to go somewhere, you opened a map. How many of you do that now? What do you do? You go to Waze. Does anyone use Waze? If you live in LA, you use Waze, not Google Maps. That's passe. Waze is the one, the app that says, okay, normally you would take the I-9 or the whatever to the whatever. This time, you're going through like this neighborhood, down Elm Street, and across this way because it's the fastest route. And you watch these people on TV who are interviewed. They're like, yeah, I've lived on this street for 30 years, and I'm getting my morning paper, and I have my robe and my coffee, and cars just start streaming by because that's the fastest route for the next 30 minutes. That's what Waze does for you. And Stillwater, it's not quite as helpful. It's like there's like two options. Uh, my brother uses Waze. I thought some of you would. Apparently, you're not as techie as I thought. Come on, college students. You're like, I use the bird. Is that good? Okay. You used to use the bird. Now I have to stop at campus. Jesus, in a way, is the way. He leads us, right, through our story. And we don't always know, like, why am I going this direction? But to follow that app, you just have to trust it, that it's going to get you to where you're going. 
And so we believe that God is true, and we believe there is one large story arc of this universe, and we believe our stories plug in. And if we follow that truth, we believe it will lead us in that direction. Now, I want to take a shift for a moment and bring up another aspect of truth that I think is hidden in some of this material. And that is this idea of a far-off country. Um, I've talked about this before, um, but I want you to hear it again, that I think when Jesus talks about being the way, the truth, and the life, he's not just saying, like, facts. I'm the way to factual information. But he's saying the life you're after is found in God. Um, So how many of you have experienced moments of nostalgia? Any of you experienced that? I was remembering a story from when I was in high school recently. I was recounting it to someone. And uh, just for whatever reason, this moment of nostalgia sticks out. I'm sitting at a television with my brother, middle of the summer, nothing going on, mom's at work. I think he just graduated, but it's summertime. I'm like 15. And all of a sudden, I was just gripped with this realization, like, we're going to be moving out of this house. And she's going to be, like, all alone. And I just began walking around the house, like, what's it going to be like? And I walked by my bedroom, and the bed was actually made, which is very rare. I remember thinking, what's she going to feel like all alone? And all I could do when I sat back down was think, wow, that was nostalgia. And the reason you can tell is when it's gone, it's, like, gone. Like, now I'm back to the television. I don't even, like, that was weird. Mitch, what do you think? You know, we, and we went on. But C.S. Lewis speaks better about it. So take that story Take your experience and hear what C.S. Lewis is. He says, in speaking of this desire, and he calls it for our own far-off country, I feel a certain shyness. I'm almost committing an indecency. I'm trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you, the secret which hurts so much that you take your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia or romanticism or adolescence. The secret also which pierces with such sweetness that when, in very intimate conversations, the mention of it becomes imminent, we grow awkward and affect laugh at ourselves. It's the secret we cannot hide but we cannot tell, though we desire to do both. And he goes on to explain that. I'm hoping you'll follow with me for the moment to understand that we have this sense in all of us that there's like this world, this life that we can't quite grasp. That's truth. That's the far off country. That's the place we know it exists, but we can't quite taste it. We can't quite reach it. So how do you go there? How do you try to get to it? And that's what we're going to talk about now is the, what, how do we learn about this truth? How do we gain access to it? In our passage... Um, John tells us the exact way we do it. He says, Jesus bore witness. Look at verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in earthly ways. But he who comes from heaven is above all. What John is saying is there's this far off country, this, this place we can't get to, and Jesus has broken in from heaven to earth, and he's telling us about it. He's our witness. He's the one explaining to us, like, 
This is what's up there, right? This is truth. This is the Waze app. He showed up and he's saying, let me tell you how to get where you want to go, right? Let me just read some of these verses to kind of build that point a little bit further. In In verse 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this. That God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. This is verse 34. For he gives the Spirit without measure. Jesus has come into this world and Jesus is saying, I am telling you what is true. Like I'm telling you the way the world works. I've been warned not to do too many uh, quotes, but I'm going to do another one of my favorites. Many of you who have been here hearing me preach have heard this four or five times. So maybe it's memorized by now. Frederick Buechner says this about the Bible and about truth. He says, the Bible is not, first of all, a book of moral truth. I would call it instead a book of truth about the way life is. Those strange old scriptures present life as having been ordered in a certain way, with certain laws as inextricably built into it as the law of gravity is built into the physical universe. Listen to what he's saying. When Jesus says this, whoever would save his life will, whoever loses his life will save it, whoever tries to save his life will lose it. That's something Jesus says. Beekner says this. That's not a moral statement about how life ought to be. Rather, it's Jesus explaining to us exactly the way life actually is. So when Jesus is offering his testimony, when Jesus is coming in and teaching us about life, he's not saying, if you'll buy into my religion, if you'll sort of orient yourself a certain way, these things can be true. He's saying, I am telling you how the world works. I am showing you on that app, take a left turn. And when you choose to take the right turn, I was telling you the way the world works. But you thought, I don't want to go down that neighborhood street. Why would I go there? My aunt used to live in there. I don't like that neighborhood. That's the way you're supposed to go. You went this other way and got in a traffic jam or other things. So Jesus is bearing witness to the truth, although there can be costs in following it. That's what he does. He is the, as Paul tells us, the vis- he's the image of the invisible God. He is the one who shows us what life looks like. And in the Gospel of John, then you start to track through the I am statements, and he's telling you, I am like, I'm the bread of life. Like you're trying to eat food, you're laboring, you're worrying, you're cons- I'm that bread. I'm the water. I'm the good shepherd. Right? I am the vine, you are the branch. Like he goes through this entire gospel telling us who he is. And the question I would ask us as we think about who Jesus is and what he bears witness to is have we set our seal to that? Are you willing to face that cost? So, how do you do it? I want to spend a few moments now on talking some practical places because what I like about this passage, and if you've tracked with me so far, you're wondering, wait, Ryan, you haven't talked about these interesting places. I'm going to do that now. How does this passage show us what it might look like for a Christian to move toward Jesus as the one who bears witness to the truth? 
How would it look like if we would actually begin that process? And I think this passage is beautiful in showing this. Uh, let's start with verse 25. Um, and I just want to say this before I read the verses. I think this passage is broken up this way. It's almost, I don't want to call it a chiasm, but it starts off with this purification, this, is, this issue with baptizing. Remember, the, the Jew has come to uh, the, the John's disciples, and he's complaining about Jesus baptizing. Isn't that John's thing? Why would Jesus be doing it? And then we go through John's testimony, and then in chapter 4, we hear it again. Jesus now learns that the Pharisees are concerned that he's baptizing more people than John. And so he recedes into the countryside and changes his ministry. So that's what we're looking at, those kind of bookends or uh, whatever you want to call them. But starting at verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, He's baptizing, and all are going to him. By the way, when I, can we pull that down? I'm going to make a recommendation. I love the slides, but when you're, I put it on here. Or Doug did. Thank you, Doug. Does everyone have one of these? Can we look at this? That's awkward. Listen, this is okay, because what I'm about to tell you is this. Here's what John, his disciples are saying, and maybe you're saying it right now. Uh, we like your ministry, John, and we believe in you, but like everyone's leaving. Like everyone's leaving your ministry. They're going to Jesus. They're going to this person whom you bore witness to. And so you hear in their question kind of a concern, maybe even envy, right? There's this sort of tension like, why is this happening? In chapter four, verses one through three, you have a different response. It's the response of the Pharisees. They hear that more people are going to Jesus than John, and they get nervous. Like, what if this catches on? What if there's something true about what this guy is doing? So these are responses to a ministry that's not doing well. You might say that about your own life. Like, what about when things don't go well in my job, in our family, at school, whatever your context, our initial responses are these, to just immediately cast doubt and wonder what's going on and wonder how this could be a good thing. And John gives us a beautiful picture of what it looks like, John the Baptist, to respond to that. John the Baptist answers essentially, he must increase, but I must decrease. That's humility. Where does that come from? How can John say that? And I want you to think about the disciples now. These, these are disciples of John the Baptist. In chapter 1, John the Baptist points out, Behold, the Lamb of God. And John had some disciples, Andrew and John the Evangelist, who said, We're following Jesus. Right? And they did immediately. But there were other men who would hang out and stay with John, and they kept following him. Right? And now they're discouraged because that ministry was starting to struggle and they can't believe it. And they look at John and they're like, what's wrong with you? Like, what's wrong with this situation? Why is this not going well? Now, why would they stay with John? Should they have stayed with John? Shouldn't they have done what the others did and leave? I don't think so. I think this passage shows in verse 30 that there's a process by which 
some of the disciples could go slowly to understanding who Jesus is. And what I'm trying to press toward is this. In our life, we have things that God has given us that are beautiful pictures of him, but they're not him. I don't, I don't, this is maybe a bad term. Just there, like, there's a, there are surrogate gods. Okay, I'm not talking about idols. I mean, there are things that are great, but they're not God. Your marriage is wonderful. It's not God. Your career is amazing. It's not God. And so these disciples have fallen in love with John the Baptist, and he's saying, yes. But guess what? I told you, verse 27, verse 28, I am not the Christ. So what surrogate gods are capturing your heart? You think I'm going to say, get rid of them, right? Isn't that what every preacher would say right there? It's an idol. That's not what John's saying. John is not suggesting that you get rid of it. If it's an idol, you don't just cut it out. If it's something God has given you, you have to reorient your approach to it. So for John's disciples, he's trying to disciple them into recognizing he is not the Christ. What you long for in this relationship, he would say to them, is something that only Jesus can give you. But we can, you can still be my disciple. He's going to increase. I'm going to decrease. But that doesn't mean I'm stopping tomorrow. I didn't pack my bags. I'm leaving town. Do you see what's going on in this kind of transition period that he's discipling them to understand there's a process and that he's saying, however, you have to cast your seal on Jesus. He is the one. And that takes humility. Now, how can John have that humility? Look at verse 29. Again, I'm sorry that I'm making you look at your bulletin instead of the screen. If you have a bulletin or your own Bible, look at verse 29. Um, John says this, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. We read these words very stoically. John is describing a wedding. Now, I have actually had the opportunity to conduct weddings, and I'm going to do it over here. And what's really amazing is to be standing next to the bridegroom. And when that back door opens and the bride walks in, that bridegroom doesn't know I'm even there. What's he doing? He's watching his bride. Tears are in his eyes. Everyone stands to honor her entrance. And as she's making her way forward, all the thoughts of wedding preparation and what's the apartment set up going to be like and did we get our suddenly cooked up and, and, and how are we doing the honeymoon? Gone. All he sees is the bride. And what John is able to say is, I'm not the groom. I'm just the one announcing Jesus. Don't look at me, look at Jesus. But he can say that because he's also the bride. If you are in Christ, you are the bride. That's why the wedding at Cana is so beautiful. Jesus is saying, one day, someday, I'm throwing the party. I'm bringing the wine. I'm bringing you in. Do you hear that? 
Do you have that sense of Jesus' love for you? What does that look like then if, if you are to take this mindset that I'm expressing and saying, if, if you're the bride and, you're, and you have the groom, then what do we do with the things in our lives that I called surrogate? Um, I don't know what the best word is because I'm sure I'm going to get emails about that one. Um, and the answer is we restructure them. We reorient ourselves to them. Like, for example, if I take my children and I over-worship my children, this passage would say, Jesus is your groom. You are the bride. Now I can love my children rightly. I can loosen my grip out of love. Or if you're a child in a home and you love your parents and they are amazing and they can do no wrong, which of course is the situation at our house. But Jesus, we're just pointing to Jesus. Like, right? Grayson, right? We don't make mistakes. And so we point to Jesus, but we can do that. And, and when they graduate and go on, we don't have to become undone and lay in fetal position because life is over. We can join John and say, I must decrease, that Jesus must increase. Like my job was to get you there. Does that make sense? What are the things you turn to then for joy? Here's, what, here's a, a little area I want to go to make kind of tie this to practicality. I'm afraid... We have, we have taken Jesus and put him in a closet for conversations about religion. I'm afraid our view of Jesus is something we kind of have in the background, but it's not the, the daily passion of our soul. So we get up and we have all these things that we're excited about, and then there's Jesus. That's not the truth. That's a lie. So I'm going to do an experiment. I made this up this morning. And it's probably going to fail. But there's two of you in this room. One of you is going to follow me and try it, and the other is going to go, I want to not do that. That's stupid. You don't have to leave your seats. All you have to do right now is imagine a place on this planet where you've either been or think you'd like to go where when you're there, you feel like peace. A beach, a cabin, a walk in the woods, a mountain scene. You all have it? You all have that in your head? 80% of you are like, I'll do this later. Keep going. Okay, do it now. Change, change over. So you're sitting there, and you really, like you feel like the sunset couldn't be more beautiful. The, the air couldn't be more crisp. You know, you've got some beverage, maybe like a diet soda. And you're just enjoying yourself. Okay, ready? Picture Jesus. What just happened? New slide. Old slide gone. New slide. Jesus like a painting with a sheep. Right. Were you able, and I know, it, was Jesus in that setting with you? Was he there? Let's recreate this scene. You're sitting there, you're enjoying it, and you feel the touch on the shoulder. And you look up, and it's Jesus. And he's looking off at the scene with you. Because he created that scene, and he loves you. Do you see the difference? We go through this life with this picture of Jesus as sort of like, why are you enjoying yourself? Uh, get to work. Right? Why do we do that? I think the picture that, that we are to have of Jesus is the one that created the beauty that you are after, and the only one that can give it to you. 
Right. And so we turn to Jesus because he is beautiful. John the Baptist was beautiful for these disciples, but at some point they transitioned to seeing the beauty of Jesus and, and they didn't think to themselves, I kind of want John again. Like they were able to embrace his testimony, his witness, and see the beauty and walk with him. And I'm just hoping that maybe for a little bit you could see that Jesus might actually love you and want good things for you. So the cost, is there a cost? Yes. The cost is you're going to stop fighting him and you're going to take the directional turns he gives you because they're the right ones. Because he is true. And you're going to love that process. And it's why saints can be burned at a stake singing hymns because they know that Jesus is their source. Jesus is the only source of truth. Is that your source of truth? Is that your hope? So, two questions and then we'll stop. Can you or have you set your seal on God? Is he what you want, at least up here in your brain? And if so, that's beautiful if you receive Christ. But now the second one is, can you accept the process? The process of slowly realizing every area of my life I want to invite Jesus into. I want his hand on that shoulder. I want his presence with me because he's called me into this arena, whatever it is, no matter how difficult it is, can I invite him in? And am I loving his presence with me? That is discipleship. That is life. That is seeing him as the witness. Let us pray. Father, we are so thankful that you've sent Jesus to give us the truth. But yet we acknowledge how so often we, we avert our eyes, we, we look away, it's too bright. Thank you for the ways you love us through that, the people, the um, situations that drive us back to you. But Holy Spirit, we pray ultimately we would see the beauty of Jesus, that you are the lover of our souls, you are the way, the truth, and the life. Let us set our seal on that. In your name we pray, amen.